Today's episode of the Theater People podcast is brought to you by Stage Door Manor. For information on their summer acting programs, you can check them out at stagedoormanor.com. Hey, theater people, Patrick here. So I have a couple of things to tell you before we get to today's episode. First of all, we have a brand new website. It's the same web address, which of course is theater with an ERPPL.com, but it's a completely new look and the website is fully searchable. You can type anything into the search bar, like say Hamilton, for example, and all of our interviews with people in or associated with Hamilton will pop up. It's really, really cool and you should check it out. Also, we have all of our interviews with this year's Tony nominees at the top of the homepage. So check those out if you haven't. And I'll be adding a bunch of new blog posts. So once again, the web address is theaterpeople.com, which is theater with an E-R-P-P-L dot com. So go have a look. Okay, you guys, one more thing. This Friday, I am realizing a dream I've had for a really long time. I, along with Jillian Pensavalli of the Hamilcast, am launching a true crime podcast. It's called True Crime Obsessed, and each week, Jillian and I will be breaking down a classic true crime documentary, podcast, or book in a really interesting, fun, and funny way. Our first two episodes drop this Friday. For episode one, we're talking about a documentary called The Imposter, which is just the most insane true story of a European weirdo assuming the identity of a missing kid. For episode two, we're talking about Catfish, the documentary that spawned that super popular MTV series. So I made a little promo and I'm going to play it for you now. It's a lot of social. It's a lot. We're going to have a lot of fun on, on the social. <laughs> nope. Nope. Edit that out. Hello, I'm Patrick Hines. Hi, I'm Jillian Pensavalli. And we are True, True Crime, Crime Obsessed. Obsessed. We harmonized. <laughs> How did that happen? Okay, Jillian, let's tell our tens of fans... In the theater community. Exactly. <laughs> what this true crime podcast even is. If you have notes in the margin of your beat up copy of the Zodiac book. If you're obsessed with There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane and all of your friends think it's creepy that you want to watch it for a fourth time. If you want to talk about wrongful convictions at a cocktail party. If you're pretty sure Adnan didn't do it, but you're going to listen to Serial Season 1 four more times just to make sure. Have, have we, we got, got a, a podcast, podcast for you? you. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> We are getting together once a week and breaking down your favorite true crime, what do we call it, art? Like all things true crime, podcasts, documentaries, TV shows, movies, like films, movies. Right. You know, these are the conversations you wish you could have with your friends. If you weren't a total weirdo. Like us. Like us. See, you guys were weirdos. <laughs> we're here for you. Episodes one and two are coming out on Friday, May 12th. Jillian, what's our first episode about? We are talking about The Imposter. The weirdest movie that I've seen a hundred times. <laughs> Our episode two, uh, what is episode? What, what are we talking catfish. about? Catfish. Oh, right. We just recorded it five <laughs> seconds ago. Episode two is going to be about catfish and that hot, hairy monster, Neve Shulman. <laughs> Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out at truecrimeobsessed.com. You can follow us on Twitter at truecrimeobsessed. No ED. No ED. Who has too time many, for that? Too many characters. Yeah. On Facebook, we are slash truecrimeobsessed with the ED. And on Instagram, we are True Crime Obsessed Podcast. You guys, I hope you're taking notes. I know. We'll link you all the time. And if you want to send us suggestions of documentaries, movies, podcasts you want to hear us talk about, email us at truecrimeobsessed at gmail.com. 
You guys, this is going to be the funnest true crime podcast ever. Which is creepy in and of itself to say, but I'm in all the way. Let's have fun with all this murder and gore and terrible things that keep you up at night. We'll see you Friday, May 12th for episodes one and two. Bye. You can subscribe to True Crime Obsessed wherever you get your podcasts, and Jillian and I would be super grateful for your support. Okay, now to today's show. Welcome to the Theater People Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Hines. You guys, I am in gay history heaven today. Right now, in a little upstairs theater at the Public Theater, there's a play called Gently Down the Stream. It is one of the most stunningly beautiful plays I have ever seen. It's a gay history play by Martin Sherman, and it co-stars gay history icon and musical theater legend Harvey Firestein and Tony winner Gabriel Ebert. Gabriel is today's guest. There are a few things you need to know going into this interview because we talk about them sort of in depth. First, playwright Martin Sherman's probably best-known work is a play called Bent, which he wrote in 1979, which revolves around the persecution of gays in Nazi Germany. It was a landmark work that was heavily influential on up-and-coming LGBT playwrights of the time, including Harvey Firestein. And the play that put Harvey Firestein on the map is his 1982 play called Torch Song Trilogy. That was also a landmark work that won Harvey Tony Awards in 1983 for Best Play and Best Actor in a Play. I'll be playing two clips in this episode. The first is from the film version of Torch Song Trilogy, and the second is from Gently Down the Stream. Gabriel Ebert made his Broadway debut as an understudy in the role of Ken for 2010's Red. He went on to co-star in Brief Encounter before being cast at the age of 24 as Mr. Wormwood in Matilda, the role for which he won his Tony Award. He has since co-starred in Harvey Firestein's Casa Valentina and in Roundabout Theatre Company's Therese Raquin. I have to say, you guys, Gabriel is one of the most charming men I have ever interviewed for this podcast. He was so much fun to chat with, and he's just outstanding and gently down the stream. Seriously, go see this play while you still can. Okay, here's our conversation. Hi, Gabriel Ebert. Hello, Patrick. It's so nice to meet you. And you. Thank you very much. So I was, you know, doing my research, and I was noticing that it seems like you maybe intentionally keep sort of a low profile on social media. Is that true? Yes. I am not on any social media. I don't know if it's intentional to keep a mystical air about myself uh, as much as I just can't really handle it. And I'm sort of a Luddite, so I, I... I can't really engage in all that stuff and still feel calm and feel peace. Mm -hmm. Did you grow up without the internet? I grew up without a television and without the internet. We got the internet when I was in high school, but um, we never had a TV um, until, you know, after I went to college and then I came home, my parents had a nice big, big screen and all that. (laughs) But uh, I did have a very rural childhood, which I'm grateful for. Yeah, Colorado, right? Colorado, yeah, in the mountains. All right, can we talk about Gently Down the Stream? Let us please. I am, well, like a good gay. Anytime Harvey Firestein appears on the on the stage, you have to come and see the show. Tickets. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but then I just have so many questions. So first of all, how did this glorious role come to you? I'm a very lucky man in this particular case. Um, 
The role came to Harvey because Martin, the incredible playwright, and Sean have both known Harvey for decades at this point, and they wanted an American actor to play this part rather than doing it in London with a Brit. And so they thought Harvey would be a good get, and they gave it to him, and he read the play and immediately said yes. And apparently they did some readings with other actors. I was fortunate at that time to be in Harvey's play Casa Valentina, which was on Broadway, and uh, we created a great friendship over the course of that run. And shortly after that run, he wrote to me and said, hey, read this play and let me know what you think. Would you be interested in um, coming to do a reading of Rufus? At that point, we were just in the developmental stages. And um, I read it and also immediately felt very drawn to it. And I got to come and do a reading, which turned into two or three readings, and which now has turned into this beautiful production at the Public Theater. I I meant to mention this before. Is it weird that between this and Matilda, I was legitimately shocked to find out that you're not British? I'm, that pleases me. That pleases me to know. And for some reason, I work very much with with English companies. I play a lot of English characters. I don't know quite how it's happened, but it's my niche, and I'll take it because I love it. Keeps my accent sharp. I this play only has three characters in it and three actors. Actually, do you guys have understudies and standbys? No, we do not. Is that typical for off Broadway? It is. It okay. is. I'm wondering if you can take us into the rehearsal room a little bit the first day. In doing my research, I had fi- I had forgotten that you had done Casa Valentina with Harvey Firestein. So in my imagining of this, you were walking into a rehearsal room blind, having auditioned 15 times and meeting Harvey Firestein for the first time. But in general, what is it? What was what were the early days of the rehearsal process of this like? It's such a dense show, and each of you do so much of the heavy lifting. So how how did you find your way into it? Um, I, I, as I said, I was very lucky to do a few readings uh, beforehand. So I got to know Martin. I got to know Sean. I even got to have input into rewrites. Um, and there were not extensive rewrites, but there was, there was definitely a lot of um, finessing going on in the early stages. And so walking in, we spent the first week, which was great. The public actually gave us a week in January, but that we started rehearsal February the 1st. So we had a week where we just got to sit down with the script, the five of us. And that was a true treat, and we got to dig into the text. Of course, it's very interesting because Harvey is also an incredibly accomplished and incredibly talented playwright. Martin and him have known each other for so long that uh, they had a very interesting rapport about the character, about lines, about jokes, about uh, which direction to take it in. You know, I think that Harvey is so known for incredible comedy and incredible timing in that sense but this play requires a real depth of pain and depth of emotion that he certainly has but has turned into a comedic sensibility over the years and so I think that this is an amazing opportunity for him and I really think that his performance is astonishing to dive into the sort of lower depths of his heart and his soul and and access some of that pain and show it to the audience so the first week Uh, was spent around a table just reading the play, um, discussing the themes of the play, but also just making sure that everything we said was truthful, authentic, and that if something rang a false bell that we addressed why and and hopefully addressed the problem and made it and cleaned it up. Your playwright, whose name, of course, I'm forgetting now, Martin Sherman, of course, wrote Bent, which is, you know, a landmark work for the telling of gay history on stage. Were you familiar with it? I wasn't familiar with it until I met him. Uh, I, I, someone had told me to read that play because there was a great part that I should play. And I got to work with Judith Light a few years back. Yes. Oh, my God. Therese Rakeen, right? Yes, yes. The magnificent Judith Light. And she – one day we were just talking and she mentioned that play. And um, 
So it was after that that I went and bought it, and then it was after that I started working with Martin that I actually sat down and I read Bent and Torch Song Trilogy. Had you not read Torch Song Trilogy? I had not read Torch Song Trilogy either. Don't tell Harvey. Well, no, I won't. <laughs> Can I ask you a question I would never ask a lady, but how old are you? I'm, I'm 30 years old. I just turned 30. That's impossible information to find on the internet. Well, I, as I said, I'm a very mystical man. I stay off the internet. It's interesting because you know, my mom is a lesbian, and before I came out to my mother, my mother came out for me to herself, and she, when I was like 14 years old, put me in front of Torchong Trilogy, and basically was like, you're going to need to know about this. And mom. Yeah. Good, mom. good mom. Very lucky. But w- what was it like for you to read Torchong Trilogy the first time? And did you, you had already done Casa Valentina, so you knew Harvey. What was it like for you to read that play? I knew Harvey as a person. I knew Harvey as a writer and as a performer. I knew that that was his. You, you know the, his coming out party in terms of hello New York here I am and he won best actor and best play on the same night it was interesting for me because I know him so well now to read it um, I saw him so much in it and I, I really wished that I could uh, have seen him perform it you know but I was laughing at little things because there are certain turns of phrases he uses that are just so uniquely Harvey you know but also it's just a masterful work and it's so brave you haven't spoken one sentence since I got here without the word gay in it. Because it's what I am. What if that was all? You could leave it in there where it belongs. But no, you're obsessed with it. You're not happy unless everybody's talking about it. Try and imagine the world the other way around. Imagine that every book, every magazine, every newspaper, every TV show, every movie was telling you, you should be homosexual. You know you're not. You know the youth is Stop right. already. You're talking crazy. You all know it's crazy. After all these years, I'm still sitting here trying to justify my life. This is crazy. You call this a life. This is a sickness. But it's what you've chosen for yourself. Now, look, I'm gay. I don't know why. I don't think anyone does. That's what I am. For as far back as I can remember. Back before I knew it was different or even wrong. You have not heard one word I've said. I know you'd rather I was straight out not. Would you also rather I'd lie to you? My friend Ed would never dream of telling his parents. Instead, he cut his parents out of his life, and his parents wonder why. Why is my child so distant? Is that what you'd rather? No. But it doesn't have to be our every conversation, either. You want to be a part of my life? I'm not editing out the things you don't like. Can we end this conversation? No! There's one more thing you better understand. I have taught myself to sew, cook, fix plumbing, build furniture. I can even pat myself on the back when necessary. Also, I don't have to ask anyone for anything. There's nothing I need from anyone except for love and respect. And anyone who can't give me those two things has no place in my life. And I also feel that way about Bent in a completely different way. But uh, reading the two things back to back and then walking into rehearsal and seeing these two men, you know, in a play about gay history and talking about James Baldwin and Gore Vidal and Tennessee Williams, all these great writers and great figures in gay history. I'm also rehearsing with Martin Sherman and Harvey Firestein and Sean Mathias, who, who hold their place there as well. And so the characters in the play would have known of Torch Song Trilogy, would have known of Bent. And I think that that's a really beautiful sort of unspoken element of this. Um, what was your level of knowledge of gay history? I mean, this, this, I was reading an interview with the playwright earlier today, and he was talking about how for years he'd been wanting to find a way to write about 100 years of gay history and couldn't figure it out until one day it just came to him. What level of knowledge of, like, the upstairs lounge, you know, or things like that did you have coming into this play? 
I did not have very much knowledge. As you know, I grew up in Colorado in a mountain town, um, in a mostly heteronormative background, and um, I was lucky to go to an arts high school. And I came and I studied at Juilliard. So my knowledge has been growing ever since I got into theater and making plays. But uh, this has certainly been the biggest education I've ever had. And I've also started reading a lot of James Baldwin and I've started reading Gore Vidal and, um, of course, reading Bent and Torch Song and becoming familiar with some of these voices. And it was interesting because I was introduced to James Baldwin more as a civil rights activist than as a gay man. And in the particular zeitgeist that we have right now, he's coming back as a real powerful civil rights activist, you know, with this documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, that's just come out. But also to think that he was dealing with being a homosexual on top of all of that and um, the courage with which he wrote and with which he lived his life. It's, it's been a real great education. And then to come into the room and hang out with these men has, has also been a huge part of that. And the response that we get from men and women, gay and straight, the response to this play, because I think ultimately it's very universal. It's about love. It is a gay history play, but it's about love between two individuals three individuals really four individuals there's a baby four (laughs) individuals and how you can if how you can create a family of choice if you don't if you aren't born into a family that supports your needs you can create a family of choice and I think that I can relate to that just as an artist and as someone who's been displaced from his home who's come to New York City you have to create a family of choice and I think that this play tackles that in a really beautiful way obviously like a very well-trained actor and you have a lot of like you've done a lot of great work I'm wondering how this experience is different like you know I think a lot of our listeners will know you from Matilda of course so you think of like a big splashy like big budget on Broadway musical and then some of the more ensemble things that you've done on Broadway but then this is just three of you and really just the two of you for the first like two-thirds of the play how um I cannot, I mean, for me as a non-actor, I can only imagine that as a daunting task. But for you, was it something that you were like bit into and you're like, let me figure this out? Or like, how does it, how did it feel knowing you were going to take that on? 
I think it's dreamy as an actor to be able to, A, be on stage with a living legend, um, which I've been lucky to do a few times in my career, um, but B, to to tackle um, a two-hander or a three-hander uh, is, is what you want because you know that there's going to be a lot of material to sink your teeth into. It's interesting that most people know me for Matilda. I understand why that is the case. It was the highest profile thing I did, and I got to win my Tony Award there. But I have done a lot of off-Broadway work in smaller more intimate shows. One of the first things I did was 4,000 Miles at Lincoln Center, and that for most of the show was just me and Mary Louise Wilson, also a sort of living legend, an incredible actor. And a big part of my education as an actor has been sharing stages with these people and then sitting at their feet and learning as much as I can when we're backstage and hearing their stories. In Casa Valentina, I got to act with John Cullum and Reed Burney and Larry Pine and um, Mayor Winningham and just hear their stories and, and learn from them and, and Judith Light and Therese Rican as well. So if you, for me, if I have an opportunity to be in a show like this, I think it ticks more of my boxes. It fills my soul up in a different way than being in a big commercial musical. They each require different parts of you. And, uh, because I'm kind of a zealot and I like to really rise to the task, um, that could be dangerous for me in musicals because, you know, I just hurt myself. I go too far. I try to get the laugh. And also in that I was playing in like a 1,300-seat house, whereas this is a 199 seats. And so there's different things that you can access. But when I read this play and the fact that Harvey asked me to read this play, uh, I was incredibly humbled and honored and, and immediately turned on by the material and, and thought, you know, we're capable of making some magic with this. And, and uh, I – Try never to take that for granted every night that I come to work. It's interesting because, you know, Matilda is such a, just as an example, was such a high energy piece of work. But I think of, I thought when, when we left this play, I thought, what a marathon you all just did, especially you, because your character's bipolar. So you're doing, I mean, at one point you're literally lying on the ground behind the couch. How do you navigate being able to rise to that high and sink to that low and be able to like do it eight times a week? You're a very fit human being, but like, I mean, is it like technical or, or is it like, is it emotionally draining too? This, whereas Matilda was um, a physical marathon, and I spent a lot of my time um, sort of physically rehabilitating myself and making sure that I was physically fit to be able to do the show, this is much more of an emotional journey. And on the weekends, we do two on Saturday and two on Sunday. And uh, by by the end of the week, it can be really exhausting uh, because Harvey and I have to go a lot of places in the course of this play. And I've I've been very adamant about charting the bipolar journey of my character Rufus uh, with grace or trying to anyway and making sure that you meet someone who's young the play also takes place over the course of about 14 years so you meet a young man who's struggling with bipolar disorder but enjoys the buzz and the highs and he'll take the lows as long as he can as long as he can fly for the rest of the time Um, and over the course of their relationship and also over the course of his life finding his needs and finding the kind of life that he wants to have. He wants to have a family, you know, much like yourself and, and finding himself in a position to actually accomplish that. And with love, he is, is forced to make a tough decision about whether or not to medicate or how he can be the best father that he can be. And so it's a great joy to be able to grow up in front of the audience, but it it is technical in many ways that over the rehearsal process, we just had to chart little ways that we could tell the story of him aging, 
tell the story of time passing without putting a date up on the wall and some projection. And I think that a lot of that happens through my character. I mean, you also watch Bo, Harvey's character, grow older. but And slick his hair back. And slick his hair back <laughs> and put on some glasses, you know. Uh, but my character goes from being a boy to being a man. And I think that that's a big part of how you can tell the journey of time. So it's a, it's a great challenge as an actor. And if I ever start to feel good and feel like I'm in the pocket, then I, I remind myself, you know, there's still work to be done. Yes. Can I ask you a super insidery of the sure. play question that maybe you would have to have seen the play to know what I'm asking you? But I was reading one of the, one of the reviews, I guess, today of the play was saying that it was even like a parenthetical, I think, where they were saying that Rufus may be on a high the very first time you meet him. Is that, is that true? I think so. I think so because he's wanted to meet this man, Bo, because he's a link to the past. And my character romanticizes the past and is obsessed with the past. And I think as a gay man, he's obsessed with a different era of being a gay man where the language was so much more beautiful, where the music was so much more beautiful, where we weren't um, commercialized. Outlaws. Outlaws, you know? And then, of course... Rufus also wants to have a marriage and a family, which in a way is a heteronormative narrative. And he has to be informed of that by his older partner. And so to answer your question, you meet him on a high because he has been wanting to get with this guy for a long time. And he has finally made it happen. And he can't contain himself. He's so curious. He has to ask all the questions that he asks, even though he pushes it a little too far. All right. Well, on that front, one more question. Now I'm just chatting with you about the play. That's great. But what would have happened if if Bo had said yes? They would have. They would have gone it. They would have gone. Really? Oh, I think so. I think Rufus wants a monogamous relationship. He loves Bo deeply. I think that there is an element of the family that he never had. You know, he's got a problem with his drunken parents who don't respect him or allow him to be the person he is. And Bo does allow him not only to be the person he is, but encourages him to blossom in other ways. And I think at that point in Rufus's life, he's in. He's all the way in. And uh, and he he would he would have stayed till the end. Wow. Um, last question about gently done the stream. I want to talk about how environmental the the actual show is. I think people forget about the public theater that like you can come and see a show that looks like a million bucks, you know, because your set is so incredible. And does it matter as an actor? Like if you didn't, so the set is like this really well appointed living room of like a obviously very smart man with a piano. He's a musician and he's a drinker, and you can all of those elements are there. Would it be? Would you be able to do your job just as well if it was a black box with not, with no set? I would hope so, but um, the environment that Derek McLean, great set designer, built for us, uh, I think, allowed us to fully flesh out the stories that we wanted to tell. And part of his vision was all the books. I mean, there's there's so many books. Well, on the books show. you could never humanly reach is the thing. <laughs> People have asked, where's the ladder? You know, where's the ladder? What's the deal? It's in the back. It's in the back. We've got it. I'm like, where's the bathroom? Okay, the bathroom's off the kitchen. Okay, I got it. But um, all the books are there in a way to represent all the untold stories of gay men that have been marginalized and pushed aside throughout the decades. Do you know what I mean? And so the... The walls are covered in books because those are all the stories that some people have access to, but only if you've been told them for the most part because our society has not allowed a lot of those stories to be told. Yeah. 
And now, a few words from our sponsors. Do you wake up humming Hamilton and singing Sondheim? Do you dream of a place where there are Shakespeare flash mobs, Happy Birthday is sung in harmony, and surprise Broadway guests fill your world? At Stage Door Manor, kids from every state and six continents spend their summer totally immersed in the magic of theater. I'm sure almost all of you know that Stage Door Manor is the inspiration for Todd Graff's movie Camp and Mickey Rapkin's book Theater Geek. But did you know that you've seen plenty of their alums on stage, screen, and behind the scenes? Natalie Portman, Mandy Moore, Zach Braff, Robert Downey Jr., Sean Levy, and Janine Tesori all spent their summers in the Catskill Mountains of New York. Stage Door Manor produces an unbelievable 42 full-scale shows in eight on-campus theaters, and there are more than 100 classes at beginning and advanced levels, everything from playwriting to stage combat. If it's theater-related, they do it. Stage Door premieres include original stage versions of Rent, Avenue Q, Andrew Lippa's Wild Party, Woman in White, and High School Musical. Stage Door welcomes kids ages 10 to 18, and there are no auditions for admission. They accept all levels of experience and talent and find roles for students in shows where everyone can have his or her moment in the spotlight. Worth Magazine named Stage Door among the top 10 summer programs in the world and it's been called the Hollywood High of Summer Camps by Playbill. No wonder sessions fill up quickly. Spots are almost gone for the summer, so hurry and go online to stagedoormanor.com for more info. Um, because our listeners will murder me if I don't. Can we talk about Matilda for a few minutes? Do it. Let's do it. <laughs> How did you get that job? That job I auditioned for many, 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 many times. Really? No, you went to Juilliard. And I don't know that. Does Juilliard have a musical theater program? Mm-mm, not at all. And you just sing like that? I just sing. I mean, I grew up, my father's a minister, so I grew up singing in the church. And then I was in choir as a kid. And that sort of led to me doing some operas when I was, a, when I was in middle school, high school. Um, I went to an arts high school in Colorado called Denver School of the Arts, and I also studied drama there, and I was in the choir there. So I've been singing my whole life, and um, I play a few instruments. Singing is definitely a big part of my existence, but musical theater, um, I love, but I've never been trained in it. No, I've never been trained in it at all. But when I – I also grew up without a television, so when I got the audition for Matilda, which – I don't quite know how it came. I think my agents just said, oh, you know, here, here's a possibility of something. I was far too young. You know, I was playing Matilda's father, but I was only hey, 24 at the time. Well, that's the part of your age mystery is that, like, when you see you in the costume, you look like a co- totally different person. Yeah, it's crazy. And in this play, I play a man who starts as 28 and ends as 42. You know? Right. And I just turned 30. Um, so I think it's something lucky about my face or my body or it's just the work that I try and put in that I can sort of – I've got like a 15-year Because I didn't know. Yeah, it's like like if you told me that you were 25, I would have believed you. If you told me that you were 40, I would have been like, oh, you look good. But I believe it. All right, cool. I'll take that. Thank you. Um, But when I got the audition, the audition song was Telly, of course, because that's the only song my character sings. Who the Dickens is Charles Dickens? Mary Shelley or she's and smelly Charlotte Bronte do not want to. Jane Austen in composting. James Joyce, oh, he doesn't sound nice. Ian McEwen, I feel like spewing. William Shakespeare, Schmilliam Shakespeare, Moby Dick. <laughs> hey, easy, Grandma. All together now, all I know, I love. 
I love that kind of wit. Uh, um, I love that kind of irreverence and the sort of total send-up of this type of human being. I grew up watching a lot of Monty Python. And so I think a big part of my education of English accents is from watching Monty Python. I think a big part of my education of physical comedy comes from that and from watching a lot of Marx Brothers films. Um, And so I think I came in and... and <laughs> Matthew Warchus just thought I was a wild man, you know? He just thought I was so weird. And of course, I was in the audition room with a bunch of men in their 40s, you know, and, and great musical theater vets. You know, we want to know who. I'm not going to ask, but you know, we, we all want to. Now we're all going through our role, like, who would have been in there? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I shall keep it a secret. I don't even know if I can remember. I've probably, in, you know, as you remember memories, they get less authentic each time. So, you know, for me, it's like, oh, yeah, Clive Owen was in there. And. Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis. I beat them all. George Clooney. Yeah, exactly. They weren't good enough. Um, so he brought me back in. He brought me back in. He brought me back in. Uh, at a certain point, I think I even said, you know, what, what, do, you, what do you want from me? Can I, can I change anything? He, he eventually told me that he spends a lot of time on casting, that casting is the thing he takes the longest on because he believes that it's one of the most important jobs of a director. I hope I'm not misquoting him at all in that way. He's a huge fan, listens to every episode, so get it right. Get it right. I believe it. I believe it. Um, So he spent a long time casting that play. I don't really know how it went in my direction, and there were a couple moments during the course of it where I thought, oh my God, I can't do this. I remember we were in tech for a month, you know, because it's incredibly complicated and also because there were four different Matildas so we yeah. did a week of tech with each Matilda in order to get the show under their belt uh, I, I've, I'm not an actor I've never been through that but I cannot imagine I mean the horror stories we hear about tech the fact that you had to do it four times yeah it's crazy although in that show it was also wild because you know we'd been rehearsing in a room and they said oh yeah you know now now a big gate's gonna come in I'm like okay sure well <laughs> but then you know we're in tech and I'm like oh my god they, that a big gate just came in you know so I was learning a lot as well well, I never saw it in London. I never saw a tape of it. Uh, at one point, I was offered to watch the performance of the man who originated the role in London, but I asked if it was possible for me to not do that because then I could just bring my own yeah. approach. Uh, and Matthew said, all right. Uh, and so, I, I don't know. Long story short, they, they gave me the part. I had one dark night of the soul where I was like, I'm 24 years old. I This guy is so mean. I don't know how to play this. What What do you want from me, you know? And I I was steered towards that there's a two-dimensional quality to these characters, that they're almost caricatures. They're out of they're the most heightened characters in the piece. And I love the book, Matilda. I went back and I looked, and there's all these incredible illustrations through all of Roald Dahl's books, but this guy Quentin Blake did all the illustrations for Roald Dahl books, and there's great drawings in the Matilda book. You'll probably eventually read it to your daughter, I'm oh, sure. I can't wait. When the time comes. Yes. And so I looked at those drawings, and I just tried to do that with my body and with my face, and I came back in and I put my nose to the grindstone and yeah I don't know the rest is history I sort of I feel like I really figured out how to do it while playing it in the rehearsal room I was like I'm lost I have no idea why am I here why did he cast me 
as we started previewing, I thought, oh, this is working. This is working. And then I'd ask him, is that too much when I do that? He said, no, I think that's actually the right direction. This other thing is not. So I sort of found my way informed by the audience. I was just having a memory of reading this thing about you today that you and your friends used to say, that's the Roald Dahl. That's the Roald Dahl. <laughs> Roald Dahl. Absolutely. <laughs> what is it like to be married to Leslie Margarita eight times a week? I was also the thing I neglected to mention in that last little segment was that also I was just trying to figure out how to keep up with Leslie. Oh, you know what I'm saying? I mean, she's you can't. It's impossible. She is the truest. She is a real creature of the theater. I mean, she's amazing. Also, she's incredible on social media and the way that she for for all of my mis- mysteriousness on the social media and my non presence, she makes up for all of it. <laughs> <laughs> she she heard, but she's so toast. funny. Like everything yeah. she says is so. I'm like, how do you think of that? She's just on all the time. Her brain is working on an incredibly high level. Much very similar to Harvey. I mean, Harvey never shuts off. The dressing room is just as wild and hilarious as he is on stage. And as soon as he comes off stage, even if it's for four seconds, he can't help but say a joke or make a face. And I just have to interrupt you to say that I know that Leslie Margarita just shrieked at the like with glee at the comparison to Harvey Firestein. I hope so. I hope so. She's up there. She's the she's the roll doll for sure. Um, Okay, just like last ish question. You won a Tony Award when you were twenty five years old. That's true. That doesn't happen a lot. No, it does not. And the American Theatre Wings Tony Award goes to... Gabriel Ebert. Hi. Um, hi. Um, I want to thank the brilliant creative team of Matilda who trusted and allowed me to step into their immaculate vision with my crazy alligator skin shoes. And I want to send love to the incredible cast and crew of adults and children who keep it real eight times a week at the Shoobs. And uh, to my beautiful onstage family, Leslie and Taylor, and my four glorious Matildas, Una, Bailey, Sophia, and Millie, come on. And uh, lastly, to this room and to the Tony committee. They didn't get the mic high enough, but just being in this room is really incredible. And to be in this category with these paragons of men, I am so honored and humbled and grateful and slightly freaked out. And lastly, to Scott and to my mom and my dad, I hope that I have done and shall continue to make you proud. This is incredible. Thank you so much. Let's make really good plays. Were you expecting to be nominated and were you expecting to win? Neither at all. Wow. What was it like to go to the Tony Awards and hear your name called? Um, The show was built... The show is really incredible. I know you got to see it, and it's a very strong show. And the show was totally built to win and to highlight Matilda and to highlight the Trunchbull. And Bertie Carville came from England with this astonishing performance, and it was really like, okay, I can just get in here and do my job and, um, you know, make this role fun and and get some laughs, and then the show and Bertie can go do their thing. Uh, But, of course, Harvey wrote a great musical that year as well and Billy Porter gave an astonishing performance that year as well so the tides kind of turned I remember I I just woke up one morning and I had like a thousand messages on my phone and that's how I found out I was nominated and then actually going to the Tonys was so strange because we had a matinee and then we had to quick change into our tuxedos and go to the red carpet and then we were the first number that performed in the Tonys so I had to quick change back into Mr. Wormwood which is like all his makeup, gluing on a beard, gluing on a mustache, gluing on a green wig. And then my category was first, so I quick changed right out of that and got the hair off my face, washed the glue off my face, put my tuxedo on, sat down next to my mother, and then it was my category, and they called it. So luckily, I didn't have any time to think about anything. Oh, that's a dream. It was really a dream, and I just... uh, 
I was just there. So by the time I sat down, I got to my category. It was the first time I even took a deep breath all day. And then they said my name, and um, I don't know. I thought, don't get played off. <laughs> well, okay, just like last, last, last thing, because I was we were talking about this for like a second before. You're like 100 feet tall, and they had the mic set for like Leslie Margarita. Like it was, you know, it was little. For Matilda. It yeah, was exactly. I know. Well, I guess that made me happy to think that no one thought I was going to win. You know what I mean? And I didn't either. I, I had thought of some things to say because one of my friends said, Gabe, at least plan something, you know, because I was thinking there's no way that this is going to happen. And it was a good lesson because the next play I did was Casa Valentina, which couldn't have been more different from, from Matilda. I was just playing this bizarre used car salesman from London. And in this, I was playing this delicate heterosexual transvestite in the Catskills who's scared to admit that he likes dressing as a woman in a straight play. And I thought, okay, I just came off winning a Tony. Now they're going to see how versatile I am. I'm, this year, this nomination will really mean something to me because last year I was just sort of shot out of a cannon. And I couldn't get the bug out of my head. It was really in there all the time, and I didn't even get nominated at all. So it was a very good lesson in terms of like – just do your job. Do your job for the reason you wanted to do in the first place is that you just love doing this. You love the theater and, and you want to do good work and bring joy to the people. And but so. then go home and like flick your Tony Award. <laughs> Only very occasionally. <laughs> you are a dream. Thank you so much for doing this, Gabriel. You're the best and I love your play and continued success. And, and hopefully we'll, maybe, maybe we'll see this play on Broadway. I hope so. That would be great. I think this is a story that uh, should be told and I, I hope as many people get to come see it as can. Yeah. Thanks again. Pleasure. Nice Bye. to meet you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Somewhere on a show I heard that a picture tells a thousand words. So telly, if you bothered to take a look, is the equivalent of like lots of books. Gently Down the Stream has been extended through May 21st at the Public Theater. If you can, you must go see this show. And I don't usually do this, but I'm going to tell you that Today Tix has a $20 ticket lottery to the show. So you have no excuse to not at least try. Theater People is a product of Theater Podcast Productions. You can see all of the podcasts we make, and there's a lot of them, at our brand new site, theaterpodcastproductions.com Theater People is produced by Mike Jensen and me, I edited this episode Special thanks to our Patreon associate producers, Robbie Roselle, Cynthia Wallach, and Ty Williams Also to Steve Tipton, Keith Allen Herzog Eric Emsch, Ellen Marsh and the staff at Oswald's We'll be back next Monday with Come From Away's Caesar Semayoa. Until then, tell your friends about us Let's get the theater community talking You can't learn that from a stupid book. <laughs> All I know, I learnt from telly. What to think and what to buy. Now I was pretty smart already. But now I'm really, really smart. Very, very smart. Endless content, endless channels. Endless chat on endless panels.